I want you to think with me about the most beautiful place that you've ever been. Think of the place where the view, the sights, the sounds, the colors, the, the magnitude was so stunning that you, you still have it pictured in your mind. What's more, you have it kind of lodged in your heart. You know what place I'm talking about? Now, with that image in your mind, what words would you use to describe that place? Maybe breathtaking or amazing, maybe beautiful or inspiring, maybe unbelievable. I'd guess that you would struggle to come up with the right words because they, they just don't have enough weight to capture what it is that you have experienced. They don't convey the whole meaning. Maybe you have a series of pictures on your phone or in a little book that you created and you tried to show family and friends after your trip or wherever it was that you were and you showed it to them and you noticed that after about the 15th or 16th picture, they just kind of lost interest. And so you found yourself at the end rather disappointingly saying this, well, you know, you just, you just kind of had to be there. You see, a picture may be worth a thousand words, but it still isn't sufficient in order to experience both the beauty, the grandeur, and the power that you've seen firsthand. If you could see heaven, what word do you think you would use? The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 said that he was caught up into paradise and that he heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. In other words, he didn't even try. He was just, there's just no words. The Apostle John is exiled on the island of Patmos. He's given a vision of heaven. He's given a vision of what is to come, and that vision became the book of Revelation. And John tried his best to capture what he saw. As we look at Revelation 4 today, you'll, you'll see things in this passage, words like power and honor and mystery and worship. Those are words that most certainly emerge. He'll use language to try and describe things that are frankly indescribable, and you will see through John's eyes, his attempts to try and put words to something that's unbelievable. At least he tried. <laughs> the Apostle Paul didn't even try. If we could choose one word to describe heaven, I think the word that best summarizes heaven is the word glory. Why the word glory? Because glory captures, I think, the essence, the weightiness, the beauty, the awe, the frightening reality, the otherworldness of who and what God is. Last week, we talked through Colossians 3 about what it means to seek the things that are above, to set our minds on things that are above. I, I asked you to think with me about this question. If heaven is like that, then how should I live now? I hope that you are a little more heaven aware this week. Hopefully you found yourself engaging with conversations with people about heaven. Maybe you asked somebody who you're not sure about their spiritual condition, what they thought of heaven. My wife and I were out at a, a date on Friday night and we ran into 10 people in the same restaurant from our church. 
And we're just making our way out, and my sons have always said this church is like carpenter ants. They're everywhere, and <laughs> it's true. And, and as we're walking out, we're not only saying hi to people and greeting them and all, everything else, but people are saying things about heaven and thinking about heaven. So they're in a restaurant thinking about heaven. It's wonderful. Yesterday we were part of Serve 16, and we're talking about heaven. And those of you who follow my Twitter feed, you know, last night I'm sitting on the back porch, and I'm thinking, s'mores and fires. Man, I hope this is in heaven, right? I'm just thinking, thinking about heaven. Last week I wanted you to think about where to look. This Sunday I want you to think about what you would see. And that's where the word glory comes into play, because I think the word glory is the singular most important word as it relates to heaven. Word glory is all the way through the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. Exodus 33, Moses asks to see God's glory. And God puts him in the cleft of the rock and his glory passes by. Psalms filled with the word glory, denoting God's power. For instance, Psalm 29.3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders the Lord over many waters. Isaiah 6, Isaiah saw something of the glory of God. He heard, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah's response when he saw that was to say, Woe is me, for I am lost, or I'm undone. Meaning, if he's like that and I'm like this, there's a problem. John, in his gospel, introduces Jesus as the Word, and when he describes the Word, he says, the Word became flesh, and in verse 14 of chapter 1, we have seen his glory as of the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3, when he talks about what sin is, he says we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And the book of Revelation uses the word glory 17 times. You want to do a great study this week? Just do a search on revelation and glory, and you'll see it used all over the book of Revelation. In fact, I think the, the seminal text about glory, and we'll study this in a couple weeks, Revelation 21.10, where it says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, and the description is having the glory of God, its radiance like a rare jewel. So when you, when you put all of this together, it is very clear that the word glory is central to who God is, what he is like, and the characteristic of the realm of his existence. In fact, kids, if you have this little study note thing and you want to know what we are learning about God from this passage today, one word, glory. In fact, I got a text from one of our staff that said, a teenager told me that you said the word glory 130 times in the first service. So... <laughs> That's helpful for you to count. Go ahead. Glory, 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 glory. Yeah, that's what the, it's basically about glory. You're not going to wonder what today's sermon's about. You're going to leave today. What's the sermon about? You're going to go, glory. That's what it is, because that is what we are highlighting. Glory expresses the weightiness and the otherness of God. It combines both the weightiness, meaning that God takes up space. He's substantive. He's the center of the universe, and it also communicates beauty. Glory means that God is both beautiful and frightening, exhilarating attractive, and also very serious. He's both. 
Glory expresses the otherness of God. It expresses the supreme uniqueness of God's essence. It's the the best word to describe the the weightiness of who he is, the the power of his rule, the, the beauty of what makes him God. In fact, I would argue that there is nothing more attractive and inspiring and frankly frightening than the glory of God. I believe that One of the greatest joys of heaven will be that we will see this glory. We'll see it with our own eyes, and we will not ever get over the fact that we are there. We know us, and he knows us. He knows us better than ourselves, and it's because of Christ and his forgiveness that we are able to be in the presence of a gloriously holy God, and eternity will not be enough for us to be able to praise both the glory of his name and the fact that we get to see that glory and we are sharers in that glory. It's unbelievable. Heaven will be filled with endless praise of God's glory because of the immensity of his worth and because of the depth of his grace. So I think you use one word to describe heaven, it's the word glory. Now today we're in Revelation 4. Our text is this first chapter in John's vision of heaven. I say first because the other chapters are leading up to this moment when John gets a glimpse of the heavenly realm where God dwells. And chapter four helps us understand something about heaven and about the idea of glory. Now, I don't know if you've studied the book of Revelation before. It's a wonderful book, it's a challenging book. It was written to churches who were facing persecution And John is told to write the things that he has seen, write the things that are, and the things that are to take place after this. So the book of Revelation is not just a book about the future. It's also a book that gives us a picture as to what's happening even now. And so Revelation 4, a door is going to open, and we're going to go into another realm. So when you think, where is heaven? Like right now, we'll talk about that in in in, in the next couple weeks. Where is heaven? We don't know. But what we do know, it's in another realm. Think of it like a fourth or fifth dimension. And a door opens in this chapter, and we're able to see what that realm is like. Now, Revelation is challenging to interpret because it uses apocalyptic language, language that is loaded with symbolism. And the challenge is to know when do you take something in Revelation literally, and when do you take it figuratively, and when do you take it just symbolically, or when is it a combination of both? And and while you consider these interpretive issues, what I want to remind you is that the ultimate message in Revelation is that at the end of the day, Christ wins. That's what this book is about. So it is not just the revelation of the future, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Back when I was in high school, there was a singing group that kind of made its way around called the Imperials. How many of you remember that song? You're gonna age out right now, all right? They had a song called, I read the back of the book, and we win. (laughs) And that's in a 
sort of pop Christian culture language what the book of Revelation is all about. So regardless of differing views within evangelicalism as to how you take certain things within the book of Revelation, regardless of even differences among people in our own church, our elders, even our own pastors of how you take this book, at the end of the day, we all agree that at the end of the day, there is one person left standing when the smoke of history settles. It's this lamb slayed before the foundation of the earth, and his name is Jesus. So, first, the display of God's glory. After this, I looked, and behold, like, there's a spotlight that shines. Behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me, this first voice is the voice of Jesus. He had already heard that voice in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. It told him to write down what he saw and then send it to the seven churches. And then John goes on in Revelation 1 to describe the person whose voice he heard. It's, it's none other than the glorified vision of Christ. He has a long robe with a golden sash. His hair is white like wool. His eyes were like fire, his feet like bronze, his voice like the roar of many waters. In his hands were seven stars. A sword was coming out of his mouth, and his face was like the sun. And the response when John heard this voice in chapter one was to fall at his feet as if he were dead. This is what happened the first time he heard this voice. He hears this voice a second time, and it ushers him into a heavenly realm. He's invited to come up. I heard him speaking to me like a trumpet and said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit. And then behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So we're given a glimpse now, we're taken into this, this other world, this, this other realm this realm of God's existence, and it's a realm of rule, a realm related to a throne. And what you need to understand is this, that the description here of God's presence and the explanation of what's happening would be permissible for us to call it heaven, but the point of this text is not to give you the details of what you're gonna see if you know Jesus when you go to heaven. What John is doing here is trying to help us and use language to describe something that's indescribable. He's gonna use images and words to try and capture the essence of something and the meaning of it and the explanation of it are really even beyond words. But again, we're gonna be grateful that John has tried. You're gonna see creatures that have eyes all around them. You're, you're gonna see 24 elders and thrones and them falling down, and these are all meant to say something. And so as we read this, I want you to read it and not just be curious as to the details of the heavenly environment, but for you to really think, what is this saying? And what is this telling me about God? And what is this helping me to know about the beauty of his glory? So there's this throne, this throne where God rules, this throne where he reigns, and this sacred and hallowed place is where the entire universe is governed and controlled. Verse three, he begins to describe the one who sat on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Jasper is a gem of various colors, and it's even included in the high priest's breastplate in Exodus 28. It's used, Jasper is used to describe the glory of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21. Essentially, 
gems like jasper and carnelian are, are meant to communicate value and beauty in the same way that we would use gold and diamonds. Like, if you want to describe something really beautiful, like if the clouds were really beautiful today, you could say, man, the clouds, they look like gold. Or a night sky that just explodes with stars, you could say the sky was filled with diamonds. These, these gems are intended to communicate indescribable beauty. He who sat on the throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. What's a rainbow mean? Well, a rainbow has its connections all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 9, when God destroyed the world by a flood, and he set a rainbow in the sky as an assurance of his grace to never have that kind of punishment again. So this stunning display of God's glory on that throne is matched with the most significant symbol of mercy, save the cross, by virtue of this rainbow. So what you see in this moment is this throne, ruling, reigning, controlling, one whose glory on it looks like jasper, really valuable, and over top of the throne is this rainbow that communicates grace and kindness. This, John is trying to show you something of the majesty of the glory of God. This is glory right here in this picture. Don't miss the fact that this is the first thing that John sees. His first view of heaven is God's glory, and the reason that he talks about this first is because there is nothing more important, nothing more central than the glory of God, whether it's on heaven or whether it's on earth. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 tells us that the essence of sin, you know what sin really is? Sin is assessing the glory of God to be not as valuable as the glory of immortal man or the glory of what we would make in order so that we could worship it. So sin, by definition, is taking the glory of God and saying, no, that's not very valuable, but I'm very valuable. Sin, at its essence, is saying, I know you say that you're like this, and this is how mankind should live, but I don't like that, and therefore I'm gonna make up my own rules, because at the end of the day, I'm God, you're not God. That's the essence of sin. That's why people go to hell. Because that's baked into us, it's a part of the fabric of who we are, that our sin problem is a glory malfunction problem. What's more? The beautiful things that we experience now, the beautiful realities that we taste and see even in this lifetime are, are mere samplings of glory that is yet to come. Everything in creation points to this other world glory. Jonathan Edwards famously said it this way, to go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of any and all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. So when you go this afternoon, enjoy this beautiful April day, enjoy food with your family, enjoy whatever you're gonna do this afternoon, just, just enjoy the moment, but realize that these things are just a drop in the ocean of God's beauty and his glory. I think that the essence of what it means to be a Christian is what one does with the beauty of God's glory. 
You know, the essential difference between a believer and an unbeliever is what he or she thinks about the glory of God. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, my prayer for you is today, you'll see today what you've never seen before. And the difference between you and somebody who has become a follower of Jesus is essentially this, that you look for glory in all sorts of things on earth, and the tragedy is those things never fully satisfy. You run from one glory pursuit to another, to another, to another, to another, and all these things were meant to point you to something more, and you were made for more, and what you were made for was the glory of God, and sin has hindered that, and, and that's why you pursue a different relationship or a different job or a different substance, and it never fully satisfies, and here's why. Because it's a shallow glory. It's a counterfeit glory, and the enemy wants you to keep buying his goods of counterfeit glory because he wants you to live in your life always thinking, I want this and this and this and this, when the reality is you could have God. And that's, the gospel means that because of the work of Christ, you, you see things that you would never have seen, and you love things that you would have never loved. And I hope that today that you'll realize I'm pursuing the wrong glory. The essential difference between a person headed to heaven and a person headed to hell is what they have done and how they have assessed the question about the glory of God. If you have a copy of the Bible, go to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'd love to show this to you. If not, just listen, because what I'm about to read you is very, very important, because the Apostle Paul makes a tragic and sober statement about the scheme of the devil as it relates to people in the world and the glory of God. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. What has he blinded them from? He's blinded them to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is what happens. Is a person who's not a follower of Jesus, they hear songs, and all they hear is music and, light, and, and, and words. They hear lyric and, and words. They don't, they don't see beyond it. They, they, they hear the Bible being read, and all they hear is an ancient book. They hear someone's story in a baptismal tank and all they hear is a, a neat story of transformation. They don't see glory. And what the Bible tells us is that the enemy colludes in order to blind their eyes so they don't see the glory. So if you have a son or a daughter or a family member or a neighbor who isn't a follower of Jesus, what do you pray? You pray this, God, open their eyes. And if what I'm saying is resonating with your heart, if something even now, if you say, you know what, yes, I, 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 I want that, what's happening is the blinders are coming up and you're starting to see and you need to know that God by his spirit is the one who is behind that and oh, today that you would become a follower of Jesus and seeing you would believe and in believing you would be saved. And then look at verse six. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is what happened to you. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the moment when you heard the gospel and it clicked, the moment when you were like, I believe that, like I'm a sinner, and I believe that Christ died for my sins, I wanna receive Christ. What, what happened in that moment is the same God who said, light and light created, is the same God who reached down in your six-year-old heart and said, believe, and you believed. 
Same God who said light was the same God who called Lazarus out of the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth, is the same God who called you out of your own tomb. And in calling out, you saw and you believed and you were saved. This is what happens when a person comes to faith in Christ. Their heart suddenly is illuminated by the glory of God and they see the beauty of what it means to come to Jesus. Oh, dear friends, that we would never lose the wonder of what it means that God shone the brightness of his light in your life such that you saw the glory of God. Heaven is glorious because God is glorious. Secondly, back to Revelation 4, we see that there is a centrality of God's glory. The the scene shifts in Revelation 4, but it it shifts from a focus just on the throne to what's happening around the throne in order to accentuate the centrality of the throne. So the glory of God is not only on display, but it's also central to it. In verse 4, we, we learn that around the throne there are 24 thrones. So there's a throne, and then there's 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones are 24 elders, and they are sitting there, and they have white garments. They're clothed in white garments, verse 4, with golden crowns on their heads. Likely, these elders are representative of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples, symbolizing the linkage between the Old and the New Testament. They have crowns on their heads. More on that in a moment. Verse 5, from the throne comes flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, similar to what happened in Exodus chapter 19 when God comes down and gives the law. There's all of these supernatural or natural sort of phenomenon related to loud sounds and, and incredible displays of power. Around the throne as well are seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, likely some sort of angelic messengers that are sent out over all the earth, as in Revelation 5 and verse 6. And then, before the throne, verse 6, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This is the floor of heaven, which is designed to both reflect the beauty of God's glory and also to be a ceiling for earth and the floor of heaven, a separation between God's domain and earth's domain. Same imagery shows up in Exodus 24, Ezekiel 1, Revelation 15. It accentuates both the glory of God and the barrier that exists between heaven and earth. And then we find four creatures. So you have a throne, 24 thrones, elders that are on the throne, and inside that circle of 24 thrones, there are four creatures who take their position on each side of the throne. The four creatures are full of eyes, front and behind. The idea is they miss nothing. They they, they see it all. And the first living creature is like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature with an e- as an eagle in flight. These living creatures are designed to help us see the centrality of the beauty of God's glory in this throne. They serve as worship leaders. More on that in a moment. For now, what I just want you to see in this scene is that everything in this moment revolves around the centrality of God's glory. The 24 elders, the crystal floor, the four creatures, the the powerful sounds that are emanating from the throne are all meant to focus our attention on the centrality of God's glory. Two weeks from now, we'll unpack Revelation 21 about the new city, the city New Jerusalem coming down. 
But the beautiful thing about that new city and the dwelling in the new heaven and the new earth will be that there will be no sun. What could be more central to our life than the sun? Our planet revolves around it. It's the center of our universe. We love it when the sun comes out, and it's hard when the sun doesn't shine. Our lives revolve around the sun. If the sun were to cease to exist, we would cease to exist. It really is central for our everyday lives. We, we chart our days by its rising and by its setting, and in the account in Revelation 21, there is no more sun. Why? The sun and the moon are gone because it says the glory of God gives the new heaven and the new earth its light and its lamp is the lamb. In other words, the life-giving sun, the center of our universe, has been replaced by the glory of God. That is not by accident. The Apostle Paul picks up on this central reality of God's glory when he says this in Colossians 1, 16 to 18, for by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There it is, the preeminence of Christ, the centrality of Christ. So if heaven is like that, if heaven is, has the is defined by the centrality and the beauty of God's glory, then the question is, if heaven is like that, then how should we live now? The question that you and I all need to wrestle with, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, is this. If God's glory is so central in heaven, and if the glory of God is so central in its position in Scripture, then where does the glory of God fall in the centrality of your life right now? Do you love the preeminence of Jesus? Do you love the glory of God? Do you do things in your life to facilitate an affection for the glory of God? Because you know, the world is, in your flesh and the devil, are battling for glory affections. Nakedness that comes across your television or the movie screen or nakedness that's seen on a computer screen, there is a glory that's offered in that. And what you gotta decide is you want that glory or do you want this glory? You look in the mirror and you see a body image back and you want to be different. You really want something different that's coming back at you. And the reason you want that, fundamentally at your core, is a glory issue related to that. And that image can control you. Oh, it can master you. The things that you say coming out of your mouth, the reason that those things come out is because you're on a, a war, you're, on a, you're in a war or a campaign for glory. We want glory. We want people to think well of us. We want people to, to love us. We have jobs and we want to use our money so that we can make much of ourselves. And if we're not careful, we can be involved in so many counterfeit glories. There are some of you who are working like crazy and the reason you're working, way overworking, filled with anxiety, and the reason is, is because it's not about provision. It's not about money. At the end of the day, it's about glory. It is you're going to work and work and work and work and work and work and work because you want to have glory. So glory at the fundamental basis of our society and our world is incredibly important. And it is at the center of the universe and it's at the center of heaven. How you view God and his glory is very determinative. Romans 8 says this. It changes how you view suffering. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing 
with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, how do you make it through suffering? Because man, this is really hard, but there is a glory that I am striving for. How, do you, how are you joyful in the midst of hardship? It's because you live for another realm. 2 Corinthians 4, even now we are being transformed into glory from one degree to another. And what I hope happens today because of my words, because of our singing, is that you are moved along in the incremental process of being more righteous from one degree of glory to another. And then Paul just sprinkles glory over everything. He says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So it's beautiful, it's on display, it is central. Third, here's the response, verse eight. And the four living creatures, each of them with wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Same kind of creatures that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter six, with two wings they covered their face, with two wings they covered their feet, with two wings they flew. And day and night, they never cease to say. They're going to say something over and over and over and over. And what do they say? They say this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This statement is a distillation of what makes God, God. The four creatures are praising God for who he is. They are exulting in his glory. They're worshiping him. These four creatures outside around him are still these, these, these 24 thrones. And then the worship then extends outside of not just the throne, the four creatures. It then goes out to these 24 thrones. And verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, look what they do. They fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever. They cast the crowns before the throne. And this happens over and over and over and over. These, these beautiful and strange creatures, these four creatures say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. The 24 elders rise, they fall on their face, they lay their crowns, and the scene is repeated over and over and over because God is that glorious. They take their crowns, these things that are symbols and emblems of their honor and the gifts that they've been given, and they lay their gifts down at the feet of the one who is seated on the throne because everything they have, every gift they've ever been given, every honor they've ever received is a derivative of the ultimate glory that is right in front of them. Their glory is nothing, so they lay it down, and they lay it down, and they lay it down because their little glory is nothing compared to that glory. Can you imagine? if one of the elders decided not to lay it down? Imagine the four creatures say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and 23 elders stand up and lay out before the Lord and lay their crowns, and one elder sits in his seat and says, nope, I'm not doing it. Can you imagine how deadly, how despicable, how arrogant? This is why pride in the Bible is so foundationally wrong to think somehow you're going to cling to your little crown and say, no, it's my crown. I, I earned this crown. This, is, this belongs to me. I'm not going to lay it down at the feet of the what, In effect, you say, is your glory is not as substantial as my glory. And what, in effect, you say, I'm on the throne. And what this image shows us and what heaven declares is this reminder that God is the one who is and was, and is to come. Amen. 
this response from these elders, the response from these four creatures, I think is a reminder to all of us that we need on a regular basis to be reminded about his crown and our crown. These elders lay their thrones, or their crowns rather, before the throne, and they say, worthy are you, in verse 11, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Notice, you are supreme, not us. The elders are talking directly to God. They're extolling his worth, his honor, his power, his, create, his creation power, and his omnipotence. And so the question then is this. If heaven is like this, if that's what heaven is, if this is the reality beyond the realities, then do you know this ought to affect how we approach every Lord's Day? It means that the primary orientation of what we are doing in this room how we sing, how we greet one another, how we pray, how I preach, and how you listen. The orientation of what we're doing here is on God and God himself. Sometimes there's a really wrong perspective of what Sunday gatherings are. The idea is that God is the prompter, the people on the platform are the players, and you are the audience. That's not worship. That, that's not the image. The image instead is this. The people on the platform, we're the prompters. You all are the players. And you know who the audience is? God. It's that we come before him and we lay our crowns at his feet. We say to him, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive honor and glory and praise. And you know, once a week on a regular basis, you need that assembly to remind you about who God is. Because all week long, you've been told you're God and your heart loves it, and you look in the mirror, and you see what's around you, and all these glory things are flying at you, and on a regular basis, you need to be brought into, brought into God's house with God's people, and sing things, and say things, and hear things, and echo things, and applaud things, and say, yes, he is God, and I am not, because by your will, these things exist, and they were created, because you are worthy, O oh Lord, to receive glory, honor, and praise, not me. The psalmist says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Do you know that the Lord has things that are due his name? You don't add to his account, but it means that in your coming to praise him, that we are laying before the Lord something that is owed to him, not because he is in debt, but because he is that great. Oh, I wish we could go on to chapter 5. Because the worship moves beyond the four creatures, the 24 elders, it includes then the voice of many other angels, myriads of angels, thousands upon thousands, and then suddenly in the middle of this throne room, a lamb standing as if he had been slain appears. And the scene in heaven shifts, not just to the throne, but the throne filled with glory, and suddenly there's a lamb, and then all of heaven breaks out with saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, and all of heaven declares the beauty of God and the honor of the lamb. Friends, this is what heaven is going to be like. And if in your heart something within you says, I love that, I love that, you need to know that you didn't love that on your own. 
by the Spirit of God that happened to you because of his work, because of the work of Jesus. If you love that, that is what it means to see and taste glory. And if, as you hear me talk about Romans or Revelation 4 and 5, there's a part of you that goes, I don't know. My prayer is that the blinders of your eyes would be lifted and something within your heart would say, that's what I long for, that's what I yearn for, that's what I want to receive, and that today you would receive, and in receiving you would believe, and in believing you'd be saved and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so you could see what really glory means. So if you were to ask me what one word describes the essence of heaven, what describes the realm of God's existence, I would say glory. If I asked you what one word would describe the essence of heaven, what one word describes the realm of God's existence, you ought to know what that word is by now. What is that word? Revelation 4 opens a window and it shows us the glory of heaven. It shows us what God is like. And this vision calls us to marvel, to worship, and to respond even now. To repent of our glory grabbing. To repent of our feigned worship. To repent of our passive pursuit of giving him the honor that he deserves and for us to bow before him and say with the psalmist, not to us, O oh Lord, but to your name. To your name give glory. Not to me, not to me, but to you give glory. And why? Because he's the one who really is glorious. Let's pray. Father, even now I pray that you would open the eyes of the hearts of people to see and savor your beauty. That there might be some today who in this very moment will reach out to Christ and become a follower of Jesus. And Father, for those of us who know and believe and love these truths, Would you cause our hearts to be aflame with the beauty of your glory? Help us to be those who sing and listen as though you are our audience, because you are. Mm. So come now as we respond, and let us respond, O oh God, as a people who have seen things about you in this service today. And the word through singing, through baptism, through prayer, through our giving. We have seen you. So let us respond as a people whose eyes are open to your beauty. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.